series resolved to be the church of the living God and we are as you know from the scripture reading 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 to 4 so I invite you to open your Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 and this morning uh, we'll be looking at this topic the deadly web of false teachers Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, as we have, we've sung, we've sung ancient words. And it is now that we come before you to that very ancient word. Ancient yet relevant to us this day. Because your word is eternal. It is forever established in heaven. And your word is able to make us holy. It leads our steps. It reforms our thinking. It transforms our lives. And so Lord, as we come to your word this morning, might you do that very work in us so that we would be more like Christ, more like the church he desires, and we would be less of ourselves. And so we pray in Christ's name, amen. I have a confession. I don't like spiders. So I have a bit of arachnophobia. It's not like um, like if I see a spider, like um, I freeze up or anything like that. But I just don't like spiders. But it's weird because when I was a child, I used to get uh, I don't I think they have them here because I've seen them, but they maybe has a different name. Daddy long legs. They're just really uh, have really long legs and a small body. And I used to as a kid, I would just pick those up. I wasn't scared of them or anything. And I pick them up and I pull their legs off. You know what happens, right? And the legs are detached, and they just kind of flicker like that for a while. And that was fun to me. But I don't think I would ever do that now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I have to train myself up again that way. <coughs> so uh, a life hack that I use uh, when my kids come screaming and say, oh, there's a giant spider. I said, how big is it? You know, so when I go look for this giant spider, you know, it's just a little thing like that. But still, I usually don't get Kleenex and use my hand. So my life hack is get a handheld vacuum cleaner. I, I don't think I've ever cleaned that thing out. There must be hundreds of spider carcasses in there. That's kind of gross. There are hundreds of spiders. In fact, there are over 40,000 different kinds of spiders, and the majority of them spin webs. Some of them don't. And that silk, the web, actually has enormous strength, up to a tensile strength of five times greater than steel. And I talk about them because we're going to learn about false teaching, false teachers, which is like a web. It is tough, it is durable, it is sticky, and if we get caught, 
in that web, it could spell doom. And so the opening of this letter has taken place, and now Paul starts this first topic. Because this topic sets what is to come, because he is to set the church in order. And so he talks about the church of Ephesus under attack from false teachers. As we discovered last time, the Apostle Paul personally and authoritatively wrote instructions to his dear ministry partner, Timothy, and he lays out the foundation to begin this new assignment among the elders and the believers at Ephesus. And this letter also served to help give weight to Timothy in terms of authority over the church in order to put that church back into order because it was under the influence of false teaching. If the false teaching was not stopped, it would result in the removal of the believer's hope in Christ. And so as we start into our text today, we're reminded through the text of this topic, the deadly web of false teachers. And from this passage, even though it's two verses, we have two cautions and one action to implement here in this church because the ancient word is relevant today. And so we are to be resolved to guard ourselves and the church from the destructive influence of false teaching, novel ideas. We do live in treacherous doctrinal times, especially as we can easily come in contact with it through the internet. That is one of the main weapons, if you might say, of false teaching. Because you just open up your phone, you open up your computer, you can go on YouTube, and you can get all kinds of teaching from all kinds of people that you don't even know about, and you can get caught up in those teachings. So we need to be on guard. And as we begin our text today, we'll discover that Timothy was aware that in the church certain men, it says, uh, ESV says certain persons, I'll get to that in a moment, these false teachers that possess strange teaching existed. And so it is that this morning we are all warned through this text. And the first warning for us as a church is this. Number one, be resolved not to be ensnared in a web of strange teaching because they offend Christ. Be resolved not to be ensnared in a web of strange teaching because they offend Christ. And we see that in verse 3. In the backdrop, it's believed that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, Acts 28. And at this time, he was able to travel again, which would likely include Ephesus, since in 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul dealt personally with two people, Alexander and Hymenaeus. And Paul then would have also had the opportunity to travel to Macedonia. So we see that city or that place mentioned in verse 3. And also to Crete. And then later onwards toward a second Roman imprisonment where Paul was expecting his death. And we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It was when Paul had departed from Ma for Macedonia, he gave instructions to his trustworthy ministry partner, Timothy. In fact, Paul had urged, that is, he exhorted Timothy to remain at Ephesus 
because it certainly was not the right time to leave the church there unguarded, especially in light of the false teachers. And when Paul had been at Ephesus, he discovered that there were some problems that needed to be dealt with. Otherwise, there would be damage to the believer's faith in the church. And therefore, he gave his loyal and faithful colleague, Timothy, the task to beware of and deal with strange teaching. The portside city of Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia in Asia Minor, so modern Turkey today and the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And when Timothy was stationed there, the city was at the height of its prosperity. And the Apostle Paul was drawn to the Ephesian believers, staying there longer than any other place, as we see from Scripture, for a period of three years, as it says in Acts 20. Ephesus was in a desperate need for the gospel, for truth. For there was a great chasing after idolatry, the great temple of Artemis, or uh, the Latin name is Diana. The temple of Artemis or Diana was located there and being one of the seven wonders of the Hellenistic world. And the temple for that time, if you can imagine about 2,000 years ago, it was huge given the time period. It was, uh, we know that it was 163 feet by 342 feet. And just to kind of give you some perspective, this week I contacted JV and I said, hey, because uh, he's on the, the, the project committee, and I said, how big is the property, so the, this church property and the house, house lots, how big is that? And so he told me it's about 231 feet by 122 feet deep. And so compared to this temple, the temple of Diana, it was almost double the size of this entire property, just the temple itself, if you can imagine that, which would translate to approximately 1.29 acres or about half a hectare. That's how big it was, which represented its popularity. The architecture boasted 117 columns protected by white marble tile roof. It was decorated with gold and had many different colors in the architecture and the d design. And the focus was the image of Artemis, Artemis, comprised of the top half of a woman, grotesquely carved out to accentuate the attrib attributes of fertility of nature. And the bottom half was left as a rough block of wood. So you can imagine how weird that is because people are worshiping this block of wood. Shows you how blind people can be to false teaching. And when Paul had been in Ephesus preaching the gospel according to Acts 19, there rose a riot. The, the widespread Roman worship of Artemis made a local silversmith, Demetrius and others, prosper by selling little silver replicas of the shrine as religious paraphernalia. You see that in Acts 19. But because the citizens were being saved by the word of God, they were threatened. It jeopardized their business, and Demetrius stirred up other business people and other people in the city, and a bloodthirsty frenzy arose, this riot got so out of hand that they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for about two hours. Just chanting that, chanting that. 
for two hours, Acts 19. And so with this background, Ephesus was not an easy place to do ministry or conduct a church, and there could have been some reluctance for Timothy to stay. And so Paul urged Timothy to remain on at Ephesus. And please look into your Bibles at verse 3, and you see the words, at least in the English ESV, so that which is the purpose of Timothy's charge. Timothy's purpose was to instruct and warn and even command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, which was strange teaching, doctrine which was foreign, teaching which deviates from the truth, novelties, ideas that are not biblical. And we note that this implies that Timothy possessed a biblical standard of doctrine which the church at Ephesus needed to embrace. And as it pertains to our church, IBC, I say this lovingly, I say it with a sense of compassion, yet open honesty through personal experience and observation of this church almost for a year now, this is what we need. We need sound doctrine. Man-centeredness, self-will, self-dominance, contention, division, diverse theological acceptance are basic indicators that false teaching exists in the church. But to balance that, unfortunately, the reality is that many churches are like this church. But as we come to this passage and we begin to apply it and we begin to apply 1 Timothy in its whole, this is what we need to be praying about. That we get back to becoming a Christ-centered church, eradicating false teaching in our midst. And therefore, be resolved not to be ensnared in the web of strange teaching. There is a genuine hope for the antidote to any different doctrine which exists is to ask the Lord that he might make us embrace humility so that we can be teachable to true doctrine. Being led by the Holy Spirit when we are submitted under him. And by being Bereans, Acts 17, read that section. It says this in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And we had already gone through 1 Thessalonians, so you know the background there. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul taught the Thessalonians. And what did the Thessalonians do? They went back to the word of God to make sure that what even Paul, the apostle of Christ, that he was not teaching strange doctrine. And that's what we need to do. And therefore, they rightly were before God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling word of truth, 2 Timothy. It's not good enough 
when we stand accountable before God and say to him, well, my pastor said that was true. Oh, this person told me it was true. Oh, my Sunday school teacher told me it was true. That's not good enough. We need to be Bereans. We need to know the scripture in order to apply it so that false teaching is eradicated. We need to have theological integrity. And you have the utmost responsibility to personally know God's word yourself and to test it by doing your own study and then live it out in the church. I am certain, I am certain that IBC, having a long history, has embraced different doctrine over the years. Biblical doctrine is not to be, quote-unquote, the flavor of the day. That's why we have the ancient word. That's why we have the word of truth, the infallible scripture. And so, but without apology, biblical doctrine is the foundation for everything in the church and in our lives. And this is clearly why Timothy is to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so the question for each one of us here this morning and those who are not here this morning, are you teachable? Are you humble? Are you approved? Are you a Berean? And if you are not, probably some of you are really going to wrestle and even rebel against what will come in chapters 2 and 3 particularly. Because those two chapters are very countercultural. And beyond in this letter, there are other things about relationships. So we need to be humble, we need to be teachable. We need to be asking God to change us. We need to be changed from secularization of the church. And I hope this is not true, but possibly some of you will dismiss what this letter teaches. For you might see it as, well, that's your opinion, and I have mine, and that's fine. But that kind of thinking, as most of us probably would agree, that we live in a postmodern world which is messed up, that kind of thinking in terms of, well, that's what you think and this is what I think, and that's okay because we can have two interpretations of the Bible, that is theological postmodernism. And when that exists, do we need to wonder why there is lack of unity in the church? Because it is true that those who embrace and maybe even teach any different doctrine inevitably introduce division into the church. And as this assessment is true, then there must be repentance from such folly. We all must understand that doctrine unites, and yet the prevalent lie is that doctrine divides. 
And the only divide that comes from sound doctrine is between those who are with God and those who rebel against God. And some will be made holy by the truth, and others will live in the pragmatic error of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, which is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Spiritual immaturity and biblical illiteracy are the gateways for the infiltration of different doctrine into the local church. And so I urge you, because the word urges us to be resolved not to be ensnared in a web of strange teaching. The elders are the ones that God has delegated his authorities to so that they, being qualified, qualified men of Christ-centered character and servants of his word and would faithfully preach and teach sound doctrine and to be the overseers of every aspect of the local church, You'll likely understand this if you did your homework, because I asked you to read, right, five times. Why five times? Could be four times, could be more. You would understand that from chapters two and three. These ominous, shadowy certain persons who were certain men, in fact, because the Greek word is masculine, so these were men in the church, they were not named, but we can assume that Paul and Timothy knew who they were. Paul certainly sent a tangible message of the severe outcome of embarking on such an unrepentive, destructive path of teaching when he named names. Later in this chapter, verse 20, Alexander and Hymenaeus. And it is a fitting reminder for our church and all churches today that those who study and certainly those who teach the scripture are not to deviate from the sound interpretation and application of the, of the Bible and are held to a stricter account before God. James chapter 3 verse 1. That applies to any Bible teacher. There is an inherent spiritual danger when individual believers and teachers and even the church begins to entertain strange doctrine. And so on a practical note, if you're teaching in this church, are you foremost picking good material and then bringing that material to the elders of the church to vet that material? When we examine the history of the church and it's good to know church history, uh, to spot a respinning of past false doctrine, we find that on the onset it has been troubled by heresies, by men such as Arius whose doctrines flourish through cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses. So we're not talking about false doctrine way back when. That false doctrine is repackaged and it comes to us today. And even before the end of the apostolic era, as we evidence from 1 Timothy, false teachers were spinning their web of deception by introducing novel ideas that spread like cancer, damaging the body of Christ. In our own day and age, there have been many strange doctrines promoted, which do not gain acceptance overnight, but they are slowly added to the fabric of the church. 
And over time, they have merchandised God's people away from Christ and into positive thinking, weekly, feel-good preaching, the, the prosperity gospel, social gospel, self-empowerment, and self-actualization. Have you heard of Prayer of Jabez? Soul cravings, your best life now, blood moons, flat earth theory, psychology, Gnosticism, Latter rain theology, emergent church. All those things are in our generation. And all this and more amount to forms of rebellion against the clear teaching of God's word. When the Apostle Paul returned to Ephesus after he was released from his, first, uh, from his Roman imprisonment, and without surprise, he discovered that false teachers had promoted their strange doctrine in the church. And this is what Paul had warned the Ephesian elders of in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, inside the church, in other words, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Fierce wolves in the midst of the congregation of the local church driving people through their false teaching to themselves and not to Christ. That is the problem with false teaching. And so as we know the timeline of this passage of Acts 20, it took about five years before the Ephesian church began to lose guard of the sound doctrine that had been entrusted to them. We can also know from Acts that a basis of spinning a web of strange doctrine is self-promotion and that, that building up a following for themselves and not for Christ. And not too far behind all of that will come church division. A brother or sister in the church who embraces false doctrine may be sincere, but they are sincerely wrong. So how do we deal with such a situation? James 5.20 instructs, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4.15, by speaking the truth in love and in this biblical manner, continues, it says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead into Christ. And therefore, when Paul arrived at Ephesus, he dealt with the issues personally and then placed Timothy there to finish the job. Now, Timothy was entrusted to charge those who were deviant teachers, and the word charge is a military term of passing on a strict command and order. And so Timothy was to exert his apostolically delegated authority as an overseer, as an elder of this church, at Ephesus in correcting the situation among them, these certain men who in addition, continuing into verse 4, were paying attention to further error. And therefore we are now made aware to the fact that the practical warning to our church is number two. Be resolved 
not to be ensnared in a web of speculative thinking and practice because it is man-centered. Be resolved not to be ensnared in a web of speculative thinking and practice because it is man-centered. And we see that from verse 4 from the beginning. So who were these false teachers? They were within the church and were possibly some of the overseers or the elders. That's a synonymous term, pastor, since they were in a teaching position. The false teaching which was opposed by Paul had Jewish elements, as we can observe the context from verses 6 and 7 says certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law. Okay, so that's important, that term, the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so these deviating false teachers would devote themselves to the, the law, the Mosaic law, and influence the church to adhere to keeping its traditions like circumcision, promoting uh, interest in Jewish myths, as it, that word is there in verse 4, and commandments of those myths, controversies, and endless genealogies. The attention to myths and endless Endless genealogies were likely the, the adding of fictitious stories to establish Old Testament family trees and interweaving them with excessive interpretations, and all that led to unwarranted falsehood. And it undermined the true law, the good law, as we'll learn later in this letter, believing the church with uncertainty to God's clear word. They take what is clear, they ignore it, and they bring in these false teachings, and then they convolute everything and say, follow me. They draw people to themselves and away from Christ. In addition, we find in the near context of chapter 4, uh, 1 to 5, that these mythical doctrines were demonically inspired man-centered rules. And from the false teachers, fangs flowed into the church a highly toxic potion of external works righteousness. Do these things and you can be saved. And also a poison of distortions, of mysticism. And it was a dangerous attack against the gospel of truth. Now back in our verse, in verse 4, the apostle brings to the attention of Timothy and likewise the church at Ephesus that these kinds of unbiblical practices, he says, promote speculations. The statement gives us a contrast between the deviant teaching, which is damaging to the church, in contrast to true biblical teaching, which has a result of bringing edification and maturity to those who receive it. The treachery of this kind of endless or limitless, unrestrained teaching has a logical end that there would be added speculation. You know, when we think about this ourselves, when we start to think about something that we don't have all the facts to, it leads to futility. 
You know, more we dwell on the endless possibilities, we just add more and more speculation to a point that it is unedifying and unfruitful for ourselves and those that we talk to them about these speculations. When people commit themselves to error, and people do commit themselves to error, even without all the facts, they may leave the church family arguing and disputing, biting one another, and devouring each other. In the same way, this is what Paul is saying about the novelty teacher's thinking, that it has and will give rise to mere speculations, not objective and real truth. Speculations begin in our thinking. It is uh, an idea planted in our minds. It is that seed of deception. And as a person fleshes out the speculative thoughts to deeper levels of subjective commitment, then it could become the next controversy in the church. And people will be saying this, well, maybe we should look at this passage in the same way as this group does. Or maybe we should look at this passage the way that this church has begun to look at their passage. Now, what if we try to do things in line with what the unchurched want so we can fill all these empty seats? Let's make church about them so that we can have more people. We hear this. Well, this passage means this, and no one has discovered it. Or maybe we might hear this in a Bible study. I know what the Bible says, but I know what the Bible says here. However, people might also say, this is what I think it means. This is what it means to me. This is what I feel from this scripture without actually studying the scripture. And it becomes subjective, it becomes feelings, emotionalism, mysticism. So what happened to faithful study? Which brings this result, thus says the Lord. And therefore we find a contrast which also serves as a reminder for us on what we are to be focusing upon, which IBC, this church, is to number three, be resolved to be focused only upon our stewardship from God so that Christ remains the head of our church. Be resolved to be focused only upon our stewardship from God so that Christ remains the head of this church, the balance of verse four. Back to spiders. Different spiders form different styles of webs. But the most common is the spiral-like spoke-type pattern that most of us see here in Vancouver. It's called the orb web. And when the spider builds a web, it first uses what is known as dry thread. It's not sticky. And once this basic structure is finished, then the spider adds the spiral parts with the sticky thread, and then the spider eats the dry thread. And the sticky web must be replaced every few days because it loses its sticky features. 
these treacherous teachers constantly were building their web of deceit to trap the believers at Ephesus away from sound doctrine and away from the cross and ultimately to themselves. Their enticing instruction of strange doctrines brought about unedifying results. And Paul writes later in chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Confusion in the church. Destruction in the church. Broken relationships in the church. And because of these things, Timothy is to take a stand to stop the teachers and any infiltration of teaching that's gone off on a tangent. And when that is accomplished, as it says in verse 4 here, the stewardship from God that is by faith, it will advance. So what does that mean? What is the stewardship from God? Well, stewardship may either refer to the office, office of a steward or to the system by which he orders his household. And now given the context of the purpose statement, do you remember what the purpose statement where you find that of this letter? I mentioned it last week. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. Flip your Bibles to there. This is very important. This is the whole purpose of this letter, which is very applicable to us today. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you so that, so there's the purpose, if I delay, so if you can't get back to Ephesus, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so that word stewardship in this context of this, own, of this letter that's written by Paul, therefore it should refer to a steward's system by which he orders his household, as it says in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And so the last part of verse 4 refers to the act of administration of the matters of a household relating to the things of God that he, that he has ordained toward a gospel-centered people. And Paul writes this to contrast the utter failure of the false teachers to promote the stewardship that contributes to this. Because such man-centered, demonically influenced, False teaching ultimately undermines the gospel. So Paul takes that, and this is compared to what Timothy and all believers are to do, be faithful in furthering doctrinal knowledge and order in the church and, and begin to apply it in practical ways. Here's the doctrine. This is the truth. Begin to reform the thinking, each one of our thinking, and begin to implement what we will be learning in 1 Timothy into this church. That's how practical this letter is. 
The foundation of the faith, that word in verse, the last part of verse 4, given to us whom God is the master of the house, that faith, the word of God, is to be obeyed. The stewardship of God, which is the extension of gospel-centered ministry, is directly connected to the saving faith of its hearers, and we, and we believers are entrusted to proclaim the gospel in the sphere of faith. It is first by faith and grace that we are saved, and then it is by faith that we live out God's objective word, and not by subjective, fanciful thinking and by deceptive hypothetical outcomes or just adding a little bit here, adding a little bit there. Let's do it this way. I know that's what God's word says, but let's try it this way because I know it will work. Doesn't, it's not about pragmatism, will it work or not. It's about faithfulness to God and his word. Can we not just do things the way that God has plainly laid it out in his word? The gospel of Christ is not one of human ingenuity and speculation, but it is fully of the immutable divine revelation. And it shatters the sinful and shadowy priority of everything is about me. Do things my way. But indeed, it is everything about Christ. If you want to be faithful stewards, it is about Christ alone, his word alone, his glory alone. False teaching derives its doctrine and practice from self and faithlessness. True teaching derives its doctrine from God's word and practice by faith. False teaching adds and subtracts from God's word. True teaching by faith holds fast to what has been revealed in God's word alone. The stewardship from God is accomplished when we as a church are in total submission, in obedience to Jesus, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life of the church. His powerful working is sufficient for the task of witness and he is the only one who can convict a sinner of the truth and so why aren't we turning to him instead of our own ways in contrast the novelty teachers play fast and loose with the word of god because false teachers operate and it says this in first john chapter 4 verse 6 they operate in the realm of the spirit of error and faithful teachers and faithful people of god operate in the knowledge of the spirit of truth as a result in light of false teaching the work of god in the great commission is hindered because false teaching detracts away from what is the very things and the very purpose of christ and maybe even the Great Commission is negated by being distracted by their teaching and the accompanying fruitless wranglings. And no one can be truly saved nor spiritually grow through their folly. And those who allow themselves to sit under such teaching fill their minds with poison. They're caught in that web. And when you're stuck in that web and you've watched 
insects caught in a web, you know what happens next. The spider comes and kills. When that happens, apart from the grace of God, the church will begin to be filled with a system of eternally damning works. As we begin to close, here are some concluding realities of the deadly web of false teachers, the character of false teaching. False teaching has definitive consequences, and it first took place in the garden in Genesis through an idea, a small yet deadly idea planted in the mind of Eve. False teaching is very subtle, containing truth, and yet mixed with lies, as it has a demonic agenda. False teaching is explicitly warned of in every New Testament book except Philemon. False teaching leads to ungodliness, moral perversion, ignorance of righteousness, division, worldliness, it is devoid of truth, and ultimately it is clear rebellion against Christ's lordship. False teaching often makes the teacher rich and popular while leaving the follower spiritually bankrupt. False teaching often will spur on the rise of mysticism. False teaching undermines God and his authority and elevates self as the new authority. False teaching promises this is the best way, but in the end it denies the church of Christ's way and cultivates faithlessness and leads to death. False teaching draws out from the church those who become people followers and not followers of Christ alone, which can result in hatred, anger, and betrayal towards those who remain faithful. False teaching desires all of God's blessings, but desires, uh, desires all of God's blessings, but does not desire God himself. False teaching makes people big and God small. False teaching makes people left unchecked as to their faith so that they might head toward shipwreck. False teaching breeds in the church a rabid culture of politics, partiality, and shameful behind-the-scenes lobbying. False teaching usurps the authority given to God-appointed elders of the local church. False teaching fosters an environment where the blind lead the blind. False teaching does not lead people to repentance. False teaching bears the unrighteous fruit of pride and arrogance and idolatry. False teaching is attractive because it appeals to the flesh of those who are not walking in the spirit or to those who cannot walk by the spirit because they are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. False teaching always promises greater knowledge and better ways, yet it never is able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. False 
teachers have the appearance of godliness but deny God's power, avoid such people. If we are aware of strange teaching, speculative thinking, it is like a fly being able to avoid the spider's web. And we will be then able to faithfully continue in the stewardship from God. As Jesus stated, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And what will happen? The truth will set us, what? Free. The, st the sticky web of deceit will dry up unused and rendered useless only, only until another web is spun. Which brings us to close with this couple of verses, 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, you, therefore, beloved. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of, error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we know your word, as we look at ourselves, as we look around at this church, as we look around at other churches, and what's happening in Christianity as a whole, Lord, it is disheartening. But Lord, as we just look at our own context, Lord, we come before you as we know your word that we would beg that you lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and that you will make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. And so, Lord, grant us peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see you, O Lord. Lord, make us humble. Make us teachable. Because we know that we do not deserve your mercy. But we pray, Lord, please Deliver us so that we obtain your grace as we repent this day. And so we pray for the glory for our powerful risen Savior for his glory alone and for his word in our lives and in this church. Amen.